This is Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition, with another episode of our podcast. Professor Mark Shapiro recently sat down with me for a conversation about his essay, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, on Torah study for women, which appeared in our From the Pages of Tradition column in our summer 2022 issue, which recently became open access at traditiononline.org. We discussed Rabbi Hildesheimer's legacy and that of 19th century German orthodoxy, the history of women's Torah study, general trends in Jewish education, and the intersections of Jewish history and Jewish thought. Mark Shapiro holds the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of Scranton. He is the author of, most recently, Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History from the Litman Library of Jewish Civilization, among many other important scholarly works. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the Tradition Podcast, Mark Shapiro. Hi, glad to be here. Um, we're talking about your interesting essay uh, that was published in our summer 2022 issue and which is now freely available on traditiononline.org. It's one of our a very popular, uh, it's an installment in one of our very popular features from the pages of tradition where we offer up a text which until now has not been available in English uh, to the, the readers, uh, something which offers an insight to Jewish history, Jewish thought, Jewish learning. Uh, and this time you bring us an essay from 1871 written by Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, that great giant figure of German Jewish orthodoxy, sometimes often pointed to as one of the founding figures of what we today, of course, call modern orthodoxy, and his thoughts on Torah education for women. So before we get into it, Mark, just remind us, remind our listeners, who was Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer? What's his legacy and his, his importance? Um, from German Orthodox uh, background, uh, he uh, becomes rabbi um, early on in Eisenstadt, where he's there uh, almost 20 years, uh, then part of in Hungary, where he creates, uh, really for Western Europe, uh, the first um, high school, Torah and Secular Studies. Uh, he obviously is a great Torah scholar, a student of Rav Yaakov Etlinger, also a recipient of a PhD, maybe the second uh, Orthodox rabbi to have a PhD. The first one, I believe, is Rav Nathan Marcus Adler, later Chief Rabbi of England. England. Uh, and then he's called to uh, Berlin, um, to open up a rabbinical seminary there. Uh, he, he met with uh, disputes and uh, opposition, even persecution, you could say, from uh, certain rabbis in Hungary, but not all the rabbis in Hungary. Many of them actually sent their uh, children to study with him, sent their sons to study with him. But he goes to Berlin, and uh, the rest of his life is uh, a couple decades in Berlin as head of this rabbinical seminary, which becomes the uh, the the training institute uh, for almost all rabbis uh, in Germany, and he's an advocate of uh, of Torah and secular studies, but really uh, moves beyond uh, Rosham Raphael Hirsch in that he also believes in uh, academic Jewish studies, something which the Hirschians were opposed to. So, and, so this, uh, one of the he's uh, really one of the Gadol Yisrael of his day. So, so this essay, this essay is penned in eighteen seventy one. It's a kind of I don't know, like a kind of manifesto for what he thinks is needed in women's education or girls' education, uh, Jewish education. Um, it, it's not the first on the scene. Uh, 
Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, who you just mentioned, had created his own what was called the the Realschul in Berlin in the in the fifties, almost almost twenty years earlier. Of course, it is a good number of years uh, before Sarah Schneer comes on the scene, uh, but he does this curious diagnosis of of what the problems in Jewish education at large are, but again, particularly for for young for young women, and he he um, he starts off by describing what the Jewish home ought to be, before then diagnosing the problem that there's a huge gap between the ought and the is. He describes the Jewish woman, the Jewish wife and mother, as the well, these are my words, not his, as the CEO, the chief educational officer of of the home and of the of the Jewish people. He, he describes that the, the Jewish woman occupies a high priestly office, uh, that she's uh, tasked with being in charge of the inner sanctum of, of faith. But but then he puts his finger on a, on a problem in the implementation of that very romanticized notion. So what, what, what does he see as the problem in Jewish education in mid-19th century Germany? Well, uh, in particular, uh, let me speak about uh, for girls, and this uh, this was an issue which would come uh, to Eastern Europe uh, uh, the year 60, 70 years after that. But, uh, and this is, uh, other people obviously written about this as well, in, in the old country, to put it this way, uh, where girls didn't uh, achieve any education, everything was uh, in the home, uh, so they were trained by their mother and uh how to be a homemaker, let's say, and married off young, and uh, but by the mid-19th century, uh, parents wanted more for their daughters, and uh, here you have uh, really something that uh, Hildesheimer and others would regard as a chil Hashem, that girls were being given advanced secular education. I'm not talking about PhDs, but they were getting the equivalent of a high school education. They were being taught languages and uh, how to play musical instruments, and uh, and that's all good. For someone like Hildesheimer. The problem is that uh, if you're not being given at least equal, and certainly it should be more, in Torah education, uh, then um, you're going to create a big problem because the girls are growing up educated in all sorts of matters, but not in Torah matters. It's also a disgrace to the Torah that uh, these other subjects are worthy of teaching the girls, but not Torah. And uh, that that's the problem. And then the diagnosis is, uh, you know, how, how do we fix this? How do we... Uh, how do we train our girls so that uh, they are also educated in Torah subjects? And uh, the same exact issue that would come um, in um, Eastern Europe, uh, some uh, even 50, 60 years later, we have the phenomenon descriptions of how uh, girls who were being secularly educated have absolutely no Torah education whatsoever. And how can you raise a generation uh, of religious girls when they're not given any education? It's not the old country where they don't need it. Right. You, you, uh, in your introduction to the translation, the annotated translation, you quote Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, and of course, I know many of our listeners will know that uh, Rabbi Weinberg is a figure with which you are so closely associated in in many different ways, uh, but principally in your major contributions in your in your vast academic work. Uh, but you quote Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg as saying, "It's well known that Rav Israel Salanter, after returning." to Eastern Europe from Germany, told how he had witnessed Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer teaching Bible and Shulchan Aruch to young women. 
he commented, if a Lithuanian rabbi would ever institute such a practice in his community, he'd be fired, and justly so. Nevertheless, may my share in the world to come be together with that of Rabbi Israel, Israel Hildesheimer. So this, this uh, share in the world to come that Rabbi Israel uh, earns for himself in the eyes of Rabbi Salanter for teaching uh, Bible and Shulchan Aruch uh, uh, to young women, how does he go about, what's his plan for how that should, should, should take place? Well, first, obviously, you need actual education. No more, it can't be done in the school anymore. So uh, there are already where uh, uh, attempts at uh, education, at schooling. Um, he focuses, I remember Talmud is not even, no one's even talking about Talmud. But not, today, even, not even Mishnah. That, now that, yes, that would come uh, a few generations later, uh, really with Rabbi Soloveitchik, and also you had uh, people in Israel talking about it. But uh, the idea that you have to educate girls in a significant fashion, in a, in a formal way, um, is what they're speaking about. And uh, it, as I said, it has to be formal, and he, he stresses some things that are important, for example, Hebrew. He thinks that it's not enough just to tell them stories, just to tell them about history. He's actually looking to create literate young women, that is, women who uh, not, not only can read the Siddur, but can understand it, can pick up a Tanakh and read it. I, I, it's striking that he, he's talking about a, a serious curriculum here in terms of Hebrew studies for uh, young women, and he sees that as what's necessary. It shows that, uh, you know, we have actually a memoir of his uh, daughter, uh, talking about him, but uh, uh, and how much she was influenced by him. Uh, her name was Calvary, her married name. But uh, you see that uh, he doesn't regard uh, young women as somehow uh, uh, intellectually uh, not able to achieve these things. And uh, it's, uh, it's striking uh, how much he's demanding of the young women of his right. day. Although there's this, this is very interesting intersection in, in, in his essay where he's describing the the practical goals of education, uh, literacy, particularly in Hebrew literacy, with the affective goals of education, which formerly had been inculcated with so much, literally mother's milk uh, in in the home. He, he writes uh, after after describing this, it's again, it's this peon to the Jewish mother as the most significant influence on the life of, the life of the Jewish people through the activity of educating Jewish youth. He describes how children would grow up learning the Shema Yisrael at their, at their mother's knee or at their mother's breast. But he says nowadays, nowadays in our newfangled modern era of 1870-whatever, children usually first recite the Shema Yisrael at school. And we require schools where it takes much effort to explain to the child what Shema Yisrael means because he has never learned to feel it. In other words, there are these parallel catastrophes going on. One is that children, again, principally the girls who, who lack the literacy that the boys have, uh, they don't have the skills to engage with Jewish learning, which is so necessary. But even when we give it to them in, in the format of proper formalized schooling, they're still lacking the experiential side, which I, I guess he's saying can only really be imbibed properly in, in the home. So while he's moving ahead on one track to try to fix the literacy problem, what's he saying about the, the larger experiential uh, lacking that's going on in the Jewish world? 
Well, by the 19th century, you have this breakdown where uh, you can no longer be certain that the child growing up in the home is going to get that's what you refer to. And uh, the school is a poor substitute, but uh, it's the only substitute we have at the moment, uh, the way he's speaking. That seems to, there's been a breakdown. And uh, right. um, it would be great to be able to go back and have that. And uh, there obviously were certain uh, homes that still had that uh, in Germany, but it's, uh, I think it's very much parallel to what we see, for example, uh, in uh, 21st century America. Uh, we expect, uh, we send our kids to school and we expect that that's where they're going to uh, get their Jewish feeling from, uh, because often it's lacking in the home. And you had that already uh, in the 19th century. Uh, right. Isaac Breuer, in the early 20th century, in discussing what he viewed as the failure of Tormdir Haaretz, he asked, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we have to ask what, what was really more important for us? And he gave the name of uh, one of these German authors, or Torah. And, um, and that's an area where in Eastern Europe, they still had the warmth that um, was lost by, I guess you would call it the colder environment of uh, Western Europe. By the way, in terms of the his, um, his longing for that era where the mother passed the son, Roy Soloveitchik similarly speaks about the role of his mother, yeah, his mother. in inculcating the, uh, the emotion. Right. Yes, 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 correct. Uh, but even as he's advocating for these developments, these advances in, in women's education, he, he strikes a very, very ambivalent note about the whole thing, because he he's very clear that the whole thing is is really just, it's just bidievit. It's not the ideal. It's not the way we should be doing it. And he talks about the the former task of Jewish women, meaning the former role that they played before this rupture, before this, this breakdown. The religious school should at most have the task of supplementing the religious education received at home but not having to replace it all the while he's aware that, you know, we, we can't really, well, quite literally, we can't go home again. We can't go back to yeah. the home as the source for doing this because it's just not, it's just not succeeding. But he does, as you, as you pointed out, he, he points to a very, I think, you know, to us, it seems very curious. Uh, and maybe we're reading it in light of some of the trends in, Jewish education in the United States, you know, that, that you and I lived through uh, ourselves or that we've witnessed now as adults, he points to Hebrew. He puts a lot of stock in Hebrew. The idea being that if we will give the young women uh, the Hebrew literary skills that are necessary, both to read the Bible in the original, and he talks about the value of the Jew, the un... un mediated encounter with the biblical text in the original Hebrew. I suppose here he's has in mind the presence of German translations of, of the Bible to German, which of course were were omnipresent uh, you know in the world uh, following of Shimshonova Hirsch, the world of Orthodox German Jewry. Um, but recognizing that that something is lost in in translation, uh, the Sidur, of course, um, but he also is pointing to Hebrew skills and Hebrew literacy as an antidote to what the young women are finding in German literature. The danger of reading doubt. Now, today, this seems to us, you know, halavai, all of our children would be reading fine world literature, the classics of Western, of Western civilization. But this was seen as something very, um, at, I guess, at best distracting and at worst, something that could really pull a young a young reader away. And th these were ideas that we see repeated again and again, uh, you know, uh, 30, 35 years later, 
uh, during the second Aliyah, Rav Kook is saying similar things about literature in his in his Ma'amar Hador, where he tries to give a diagnosis for the rising secularism uh, amongst young Jewish people. He points to you know reading books. You know, we're not talking well, about trashy novels. What what was it about? What was it about that that you know world of nineteenth yeah. and 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 later twentieth century uh, literature that was seen as so threatening? The issue, as I see it, is as follows: You're reading, let's say, uh, German literature. You're reading French literature. That's where you think serious ideas are. That's where you think there's significance. And your own tradition is just some sort of folkloristic, uh, nostalgic sort of uh, hang on. You don't, unless you're reading the original writings, unless you're reading the Bible. And he mentions Hebrew poets. Uh, you don't see the significance of our own tradition. And he's trying to pull people back. With young women in particular, and say that we have important things here, uh, without having the actual knowledge to uh, confront these texts uh, independently, uh, one would grow up and assume that everything good is over there. Whereas we too have it. We have great literature. We have great poetry. We have all the all the, everything you need. Now, let me take that back. Not everything you need, but everything you need to view our tradition with the respect that it deserves, you can find here. And that, that's the real problem he's pointing to, that uh, these people were growing up without seeing our tradition as significant. And I point out, I mentioned that myself, uh, as I recall in the introduction, that um, people we have in our own communities, people grow up with a, an elementary school level education, and yet they're advanced in, in the sciences and humanities. And that's a big problem because uh, it's the same problem Hildesheimer was speaking of, that uh, there's no uh, complementarity in terms of sophistication and appreciation. Everyone can appreciate uh, the culture out there, how significant it is, but what about our internal culture? And that's what he's referring to when he speaks about the need to educate them so they can recognize what's the beauty and the greatness found in their own tradition. Right. But of course, the, the struggle here between, to use an anachronistic terminology, between Torah umada or Torah im derech eretz, depending upon how one defines derech eretz, which is, is of course a, a greatly debated topic when thinking about German Orthodoxy. Uh, the Torah umada, the Torah and general culture that they're talking about, is a very high culture, indeed. And today, when we tend to have this conversation, uh, I think there's a growing fear that uh, what we're talking about is Torah being in attempted dialogue with or in conflict or in tension with an increasingly lower culture. Um, so there's a kind of curiosity here because I think many of us would think, well, <laughs> we'd be delighted if uh, if our schools were teaching high culture and, and literature and uh, and civilization and things like that in a, in a in a serious way but it could be that we are a little more on firm grounding when it comes to to torah learning although the kind of the characteristics of our communities and homes of course are very different than they were in 18th century yes. Germany. the great uh threat as it were the great distraction for torah learning then were great works of literature 
both in uh, in the vernacular in German and French, uh, and later in Hebrew, of course, uh, Haskalah writers. Uh, that's obviously very different today when the distractions are social media, low culture, and it does raise the question of what uh, Hirsch, Hildesheimer, and the other German Orthodox uh, thinkers would say about our era. In the, at the 200th anniversary of Hirsch's birth in uh, 2008, uh, a bit of a scandal when the rabbi of the Washington Heights community got up and declared that uh, today Hirsch would no, not advocate Torim Derech Eretz because the culture is so decadent that uh, today we need to just focus on Torah. And that was covered by the Jewish press. I think the president of the community resigned. But uh, the rabbi... He made a good point there that and it's something we need to think about, that the culture today is a low culture and a decadent culture. And if you go ahead since 2008 to uh, where we are now, uh, it hasn't gotten better, declined even more that it does raise the issue of um, of how to update uh, this uh, German Orthodox system of Torim Derech Eretz, Torah Mad, uh, to the contemporary culture. There's certainly much less to take from the wider culture than there was. But uh, I want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because there was also low culture uh, in Weimar Germany, certainly, and uh, even in earlier periods. So uh, it just means you have to be more particular about uh, the culture out there. The um, the discussion of Hildesheimer, of course, always comes together somehow, touching on the the life and legacy of of Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch, of course, was you know was the first great figure in German Orthodoxy, and Rav Israel Hildesheimer is usually then referred to uh, in the second breath. How do the when examining their positions on these things and you know their overall uh, thought and approach? In what ways are they similar? In what ways do they diverge? Well, they're both similar in that they realize that today we're living in the modern world. We need to be part of Western civilization. There's a lot of value there. The difference is that Hirsch romantically speaks about how this is the Jews' mission. It wasn't just a reform that spoke about a mission, that uh, that Jews were placed in the ghetto against their will, that the greatest Kiddush Hashem is to live uh, among the, uh, the non-Jews and... Uh, be a doctor or a government worker. Uh, in the 19 letters, he uh, develops all this. Uh, mm. For Hildesheimer, it seems that this was all just bediavad, um, that uh, it would have been very fine if we were still living, if it was still possible to live in an era when you could live like we used to live, would not have any involvement with the outside world. But that you can't have that anymore. But it's it's not this romantic hope, uh, that, that, and romantic looking back that this is how we always should have lived. You never see that in Hildesheimer. Furthermore, they diverged significantly over academic Jewish studies. Uh, Hirsch did not believe that you can study our traditional exactly. sources, yeah. Torah, even uh, Chazal, through the use of academic lenses. And uh, he was uh, very opposed to what was taught uh, at the rabbinical seminary, and obviously his students were opposed to it. Uh, he was much more of an extremist in terms of separatism, although Hildesheimer was also a member of the separatist community, but it was in Berlin, but it was Hildesheimer's major student, uh, the Marcus Mordechai Harvitz, the Mate Levi, who uh, became rabbi of the general community in Frankfurt uh, at the same time Hirsch was there, which Hirsch viewed as uh, literally a, um, a rejection of Torah Judaism, the right. idea that you become a rabbi of that community. So uh, they uh, they agreed on certain basic principles, but they also diverged on others. Well, so, it might be it might be a little less surprising that that Hirsch took that position regarding academic study. That was the conventional rabbinic approach. 
what do we know about how Hildesheimer came to his perhaps countercultural position on the matter? What were the influences well, that led him? I remember, but Hirsch's uh, approach was also at odds with the conventional rabbinic approach. In other matters, uh, in other matters, but not on that uh, particular issue. But um, the idea, for instance, that there'd be a problem in using Arabic, let's say, to uh, understand Hebrew language, I don't know if that's at odds. For people who are not interested in academic studies at all, uh, understandably, but uh, Hirsch set up uh, certain fundamentals of the faith that went further than um, Hildesheimer. Hirsch uh, condemned uh, Hildesheimer's Talmud Mufaker, David C. Hoffman, mm -hmm. his doctoral dissertation on, on uh, the Amora Shmuel, spoke about influences on the Amora and how he came to his ideas. And uh, Hirsch's position was that when you look at the great Amoraim, you can't uh, try to analyze them in terms of influences. And so uh, it's uh, it's an ahistorical position. He's more of a romantic. The, the Hersheans got PhDs, but they would get PhDs, let's say, in German literature, even in English literature. They would not, as in Berlin, they wouldn't look at uh, the, the Targumic understanding of, uh, you know, the Book of Esther, things like that. So it's uh, the issue of Torah und Wissenschaft. Yeah. yeah. As um, as uh, used that expression in an essay he wrote in Yeshurin, and that really was a great divergence. And Hildesheimer, um, he, he received a PhD. I don't know what led him in that direction, but the Rabbinical Seminary of Berlin, until its closing, right. was um, an institute for Torah and academic Jewish right. studies. So we, yeah. the Kodesh. Yeah. And if you look at a place like Yeshiva University or Bar-Ilan, although Hirsch uh, right. assumes a role, in practice, they're much more influenced by the Hildesheimer vision of orthodoxy. Right. But the but the the influences on him, the things that led him towards that, are a bit shrouded in the mystery of his biography. Well, he decided to attend the university, and well, he was attracted to the academics. But you're putting the chicken PhD. and the egg. The, the very decision what? to attend the university was a product. It's hard of to know. Some... He was a student of Jakob Etlinger, who also had attended the university, but only for one year. And at the university, he uh, his dissertation is on um, studies in the Septuagint, and it's actually written in Latin. So he has this great classical education. I'm not sure uh, what uh, led him into that area, as opposed to um, mm -hmm. the you know the literature areas, and why uh, his ideas of doctrine were not as uh, um, limited as um, as Hirsch. Uh, but um, for the most part, people who went to the university were interested in. Um, in what we would call academic studies. They weren't right. just interested in studying literature, they were interested in history, and uh, and Hirsch was also interested in history, but Jew Judaism was sort of like a sui generis, and uh, you can't apply uh, the principles of the study of history to Jewish history the way that in the academy they would. So that's it's a real divergence. Although I have to say that uh, members of the Hirschian community did study in, um, would later, not at the beginning, mm -hmm. study also in Berlin, and there were separatists uh, who studied in Berlin, but there still remained a divergence. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to take a step back and and uh, maybe look under the hood a drop uh, into your uh, researcher's notebook uh, to to engage you as a as a historian. Uh, this was a, a text, you know, which now that it's available to us in English, we we understand its significance and its interest and its importance. Um, but it was not something that was widely available before. And how did you, first of all, how did you come across this uh, text? What did you, what was your first reaction upon uh, upon finding it? Well, first of all, I, this is, I think, the sixth or the seventh. Uh, I have a note there in the article that uh, gives the right, details. You've written a number of pieces. Uh, 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 basically, to 
uh, to revive from the dead almost uh, what I think important works written um, in Germany that uh, obviously reflect the German era, but also are of lasting significance uh, because the issues that German Orthodoxy dealt with are also relevant uh, to contemporary times. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so that that's really the project. And I have a number of other uh, such no, no doubt we're No doubt we're reading a chapter of a book in the making, we hope. Yes, yeah, so you can put them all together. And this passage, this text, I first became aware of it um, from David Ellenson's um, biography, a very good biography of Israel Hildesheimer. Mm -hmm. It's a rare item, and uh, the Hebrew Union College has a copy of this, but uh, there are only okay. a few. It's, it was published in, in a kind of pa pamphlet? Or, uh... Yes, in a pamphlet, and I, uh, years ago I got a copy from the Hebrew Union College, and uh, mm -hmm. I thought it was time uh, to uh, translate it. Okay. Um, I, I give it my best shot. They have uh, a native German speaker to go over to correct me from some errors. But uh, again, this is the second piece from Hildesheimer. I also published a piece that uh, a talk he gave um, one year at, uh, they would publish uh, proceedings of, uh, the of the Rabbinical Seminary of Berlin uh, with an essay uh, from the head of it and uh, how many students they had. And he gave a very important speech setting forth the goals of the Rabbinical Seminary of Berlin. That's where he uses the expression that this isn't a rabbi factory, yeah, yeah. You, uh, number one, uh, he says, and also he says that uh, as he viewed the Rabbinical Seminary of Berlin, it was supposed to be an intellectual center for German orthodoxy, yeah, yeah. not just to create rabbis. Uh, um, that was an essay you published, I think, in the Torah Umada Journal in uh, in two thousand. Correct. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, this appears in tradition in this uh, column that we have. Uh, it's been running uh, since our second issue in our uh, in our spring nineteen fifty nine uh, issue. So it's going back, uh, you know, sixty four mm -hmm. some odd years. And it's appeared off and on for many, many years, of course, uh, probably for about uh, 30 years or so. The column was headed by uh, by uh, Professor uh, Sid Lyman, uh, where you take these types of uh, hidden gems, uh, texts of interest, um, and make them available in an annotated edition. I, as a young reader of tradition, always was particularly interested in these columns. And my very my own very first piece of published writing was an entry in uh, in the from the pages of tradition, um, and I've I think contributed a number of them myself. I think you've done at least more than one in in the past. Well, I I've um, I did one Rabbi W. C. Hoffman mm -hmm. um, on the Hebrew University, and I've also done two, which uh, actually could have been in tradition. I did uh, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg his essay on Berdashevsky, it appeared mm -hmm. in the Jewish Review of Books, and also mm -hmm. an interview I discovered with the Rogachover. Uh -huh. Which is quite unusual to have an interview yeah. with a Golubi Israel, especially one like the Rugachover. Yes, so, yes, I remember that piece. Um, and um, there's a lot of these, as you say, these right. hidden gems right. out there. Right. And right. Professor Lyman was excellent because his hand was on everything right. and he was able to find these right. hidden right. gems. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, in my work as editor, I've, I've tried to a bit revive the column and to, to make sure that we have occasional offerings in that in that department, you know, mostly just because I always find it interesting and I know that many of our readers do. And of course, as, as do you, but I'm curious, look, tradition is what we call a journal of Jewish thought. Even though we have always going back to the days of our founder, Rabbi Norman Lamb, defined Jewish thought rather expansively. So you, of course, are, are known as one of our community's, uh, you know, leading Jewish historians, and your your academic work 
goes past the walls of the, the ivory tower and has had a, a deep impact on the religious conversation in in our community on a whole variety of, of issues, you know, ranging from, you know, what are the parameters of Jewish belief to what are the defense mechanisms that the Judaism has that orthodoxy has put up in order to in order to uh, change the immutable in order to in order to censor itself and to try to police uh, you know what may have been considered dangerous ideas and at what cost I just mentioned two of your uh, important works uh, to say nothing of the contributions you've made by bringing the thought and teachings and Torah of Rav Chidak of Weinberg to uh, the forefront of of our community's attention. Where do you see pieces like this, this type of deep dive into a historical document? How does that fit in? How is that also an offering, not just in history classically defined in a academic history department, but how does it become an object of, of again, what I'm calling broadly Jewish thought, uh, not Jewish philosophy per se, but Jewish thought, religious thought, uh, how are we as a religious community meant to engage with a scholarly offering such as this? What does it do for us as uh, as thinking spiritual uh, religious beings? Okay. Well, first, I'll just note, even for answering your question, that uh, although it's a journal of Orthodox Jewish thought, the column itself also had all sorts of things without relevant to Jewish thought. Uh, at least when Professor Lyman right. was contributing right. interesting well, historical... Uh, again, it depends uh, on how one defines... You can gerrymander Jewish thought in lots of different ways. Uh, but uh, the way I look at it, uh, a figure like a Brazil Hodesheimer, by definition, anything he says is uh, eternally of interest and of significance. And uh, all the texts that I've translated have been of that sort, where, uh, although we're dealing with a different era, but uh, these are the words of uh, great people whose uh, insights, uh, as um, and people often commented in medieval times that some of the greatest material was in Arabic, so it had to be uh, removed and brought into our camp by uh, putting it into Hebrew. I think it's unfortunate that some of the most important uh, insights that uh, from these figures uh, were penned in a language that today is foreign to most people. So uh, that's why I uh, was interested in translating it. And um, as we saw in, in this essay, uh, the the issues that he's dealing with are the same issues that we're dealing with today. So uh, I, it, it translates very easily uh, because it is a matter of how, what's the proper Jewish education? How do you respond to changing times? Uh, uh, all these matters are eternally relevant in that respect. So clearly they fall into Jewish thought. The piece from the pages of tradition is called Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer on Torah study for women. We were very glad to feature it in our summer 2022 issue beyond the obvious reasons which we've just been discussing, but because it marked the return of Mark Shapiro to the pages of tradition after a, after an absence of some time. And we hope that uh, he will be offering up contributions on a much more regular basis uh, to our readers, because uh, I think that these are things of great interest. Uh, as I said, they're at the intersection of, of Jewish learning, of Jewish history, of Jewish thought and of of Jewish living, uh, these are texts from the mid the mid nineteenth uh, century, and they have relevance to us today as 
people tasked with Jewish education, even if only as the Jewish educators of our own children today in the early 21st century. And in that regard, we really do understand the eternal relevance of ancient texts. So traditiononline.org, feel free to go and get your open access copy of, of this essay, as well as uh, some earlier offerings by uh, Mark Shapiro in our in our archives, along with the open access archives going back to 1958. Thank you very much, Professor Mark Thank Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here.